We now are able to read about how God shows his delight in his earthly Zion, his earthly holy city during the time of Nehemiah. And we find this in Nehemiah chapter 7. So Israel has just finished facing quite a bit of trial. Uh, Judah has just finished facing quite a bit of trial and now they have managed to settle down and things have become a little bit quieter after everything has been built. Then it was when the wall was built and I had hung the doors, when the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed, that I gave the charge of Jerusalem to my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the leader of the citadel, for he was a faithful man and feared God more than many. And I said to them, Do not let the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they stand guard, let them, be, let them shut and bar the doors and appoint the guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, one at his watch station and another in front of his own house. Now the city was large and spacious, but the people in it were few, and the houses were not rebuilt. Then my God put it into my heart to gather the nobles, the rulers, and the people, that they might be registered by genealogy. And I found a register of the genealogy of those who had come up in the first return, and found written in it, These are the people of the province who came back from captivity, of those who had been carried away, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away, and who returned to Jerusalem and Judah, everyone to his city. Those who came with Zerubbabel were Jeshua, Nehemiah, Azariah, Ramiah, Nehemani, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispereth, Bigvi, Nahum, and Baana. The number of the men of the people of Israel. And so follows a listing of the number of men of the people of Israel. Verse 39, the priests. Verse, 45, uh, verse 43, the gatekeepers. Verse 45, Verse 43, the Levites, pardon me. Verse 45, the gatekeepers. Then following the Nethanim. 57, the sons of Solomon's servants. And we continue. Altogether, the whole assembly in verse 66. Altogether, the whole assembly was 42,360. Besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337. And they had 245 men and women singers. Their horses were 736. Their mules, 245. The camels, 435. And donkeys, 6,720. And some of the heads of the fathers' houses gave to the work. The governor gave to the treasury 1,000 gold drachmas, 50 basins, and 530 priestly garments. Some of the heads of the fathers' houses gave to the treasury of the work 20,000 gold drachmas, and 2,200 silver minas. And that which the rest of the people gave was 20,000 gold drachmas, 2,000 silver minas, and 67 priestly garments. So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the Nethanim, and all Israel dwelt in their cities. When the seventh month came, the children of Israel were in their cities. So far. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, today we continue our journey through the book of Nehemiah. The previous chapters of Nehemiah have been a whirlwind of activity. 
It all begun in chapter 1 with Nehemiah's confession to God. He begged, for, he begged God for mercy on the basis of God's own promises. Remember, he cried out, calling God, asking God to hold to his promise to bring back a people if they repented. God did indeed remember and answer. And the process of return and rebuilding has been going on ever since. Now, finally, finally the walls have finished being rebuilt. Despite hardship and opposition, due to the grace of God, the people have been able to win through. The pioneers have broken the ground, and now Jerusalem is ready for a flood of returning exiles. And as they make their final preparations, we can see that our God shows his faithfulness to his work and through his covenant community. We'll see, first of all, the pivot, second, the protector, and finally, the people. In the opening verses of Nehemiah chapter 7, we read, Then it was, when the wall was built and I had hung the doors, when the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed, that I gave charge to Jerusalem, to my brother Hanani, and Hananiah, the leader of the citadel, for he was a faithful man and feared God more than many. The walls are finished. The gates are hung. And the city of Jerusalem looks like it will soon be running smoothly with the appointment of new leadership. For the first time since the beginning of the book, there has been no disaster, no conflict, no terror, hatred, bitterness, side deals, betrayals, or hopelessness. Instead, there is the recognition of completion. Peacefulness begins to reign in the city for a brief time. You can almost compare it to sitting in a tent during a storm. I'm sure many of you have done it in the past, or if you haven't, maybe this will be something you'll experience this summer. It's like the storm has been raging and howling around your tent, and the rain beating against the walls. The ferocity of it keeps you from going too far away. And it seems like nature is assaulting your little campsite with as much fury as it can muster. And in your frantic efforts to keep your tiny kingdom dry, your entire world has shrunk to about 10 feet of plastic and tarp. You forget about home. You forget about the comforts that you left behind. All that matters is the moment. You've desperately shoveled a trench around your site to keep your tent from flooding. You've checked all your pegs and lines. Sitting in the tent, pushing water off that has pooled on the roof, that's become a full-time job. And then suddenly, nothing. The wind dies away, the rain slows to a tapping, and finally stops, and silence reigns for a brief moment. Such is the case of the people working with Nehemiah, the cupbearer to the king. They've weathered the storm against all odds, Nations have raged against them while they gradually built up their walls. They faced assaults from outside and from within. They can't have the time to slow down to even think about where they had come from. They're so busy with their work. They're so involved. And in one moment after another, it seemed like the devil might prevail. But through it all, Nehemiah kept pointing their eyes to the God to whom they belonged. He reminded them who they were, and he reminded them whose 
they were. He himself repented and changed his life where he became aware of sin. And he let the work of God for his people transform him personally as well. We could see that in the previous chapters. And finally, the wall was built. Not only that, but we also read that the nations around were, built, were brought to a stunning conclusion at the end of chapter 6, verse 16. And it happened when all our enemies heard of it and all the nations around us saw these things that they were very disheartened in their own eyes. For they perceived that this work was done by our God. With that realization, the opposition has settled into the background. The opponents of Nehemiah and in his court have decided to take a step back and stick to sending messages for now. God's purpose has won out so far, and his enemies need to regroup for a brief moment peace reigns. For a brief moment, the people of God get a chance to take a deep breath. With this brief moment of rest, this chapter becomes a pivotal point in the book of Nehemiah. It marks the close of one phase of God's work in the person of Nehemiah, through the person of Nehemiah. And it marks the beginning, the entry of another in this book. The work of building the wall has been completed. The defenses of God's people have been raised. One avenue of the devil's attacks have been cut off, and the people can now switch their focus. They can change their focus from defense to worship. For that is what we find in this and the next chapters of Nehemiah. We find the restoration of the Jewish community in Jerusalem. There's a revival that occurs under the preaching of Ezra. People begin to flood back to the city, and the city itself is dedicated to the service of God. Finally, in chapter 13, we find a summary of reforms that have been able to take place, thanks to the service of God. But in this in-between moment, this moment of quiet after the storm, there is a danger that comes to a life of normalcy. We find that very same danger in our midst today. On the morning of Tuesday, September 11, 2001, the people of the world were rocked with visuals of planes slamming into the side of two towers in lower Manhattan, New York. Churches were packed with people who turned to the Lord in these turbulent times. But as more legislation was passed to protect the people, legal walls were built. And then, because of those walls, people fell back into their old routines, their old habits. And much of America fell away once again. Like Jesus warned about in the parable of the sower, the people heard the gospel, and it brought them momentary comfort in a time of struggle, in a time of strife. But when life got in the way again, when peace and safety and comforts once again ruled, the gospel was choked out. When troubles come your way, many of you do realize that you're brought to a tipping point. You're brought to a point in which the road diverges in two directions. Now for many, this is an easy time in which to turn to God to choose the way that brings the most comfort, to lean on him, 
And it's a beautiful thing. It's reassuring to be reminded that there is a God who is in control of all things. But what happens after? What happens to you now? Perhaps you're settled down. Perhaps you're comfortable now. Times of difficulty are behind you. What happens? What many don't realize is that with the answer of our prayers, when safety and balance are restored to our lives, we're faced with another crossroads. This is one that's described vividly by Jesus in Matthew 7, verse 13 to 14. We stand at this crossroads, looking as far as we can down each one, wishing that we could take both. The road of comfort beckons, the broad one, the one more traveled, returning to the dulled senses and the pleasures of this world. The road less traveled, which looks narrow, but which we know leads to life, stands there as well. Are we going to take the road less traveled? Which road will we take? Why? And in whose strength? The nations around of Judah, they all know, they all now know that God is with them. But will the people of God, now that they've reached this time of peace, will they acknowledge him now that life has settled down again? God has shown his faithfulness. He has shown his faithfulness to his work and his faithfulness through his people. Will they respond? This brings us to our second point. We're not given an answer to this directly. This answer comes later in the book. But for the moment, our eyes are directed elsewhere. God directs our eyes to the appointment of two men who are given governance over the city. Hanani and Hananiah. Nehemiah commands the two of them, do not let the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they stand guard, let them shut and bar the doors and appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, one at his watch station and another in front of his own house. In the state that the province of Judah found itself in, it's no big surprise that the first person that Nehemiah appoints is his brother, Hanani. Some people might consider this nepotism, taking advantage of your authority, taking advantage of your power in order to bring family into positions of power. But if we consider the position that Nehemiah finds himself in, we can see that this isn't the case. Think about what he was facing. He knew very well what was happening at the end of chapter 6. He knew that there were those among the aristocracy who owed their allegiance to the enemies of the people of God. He had also arrived in Judah himself not too long ago. So consider how many people he would have been able to trust at this point. To trust long enough to leave them in the position of governor of the city. Hanani he knew. Hanani was the one who had first reported to him in chapter 1 showing the great need that the people of Judah had for God's mercy. And because of this, Hanani is the first person that he turns to in his time of need. Second, he turns to Hananiah. Hananiah's name is derived from the name Hananiahu, which means God is gracious. And his life seems to have reflected this grace of God. 
We read that he was a prominent military leader in Jerusalem, the leader of the citadel. But it's not for that reason alone that he was appointed to his prominent position. Instead, he was appointed to lead for two other reasons. First, he was a faithful man. And second, he feared God more than many. He was a faithful man. The Hebrew here literally states that he was a man of truth. The nuance that this word carries with it is that this was a man who was firm, a man who was reliable. He wasn't just anyone who was appointed from the aristocracy. He was not one of the nobles whom we saw in the previous chapter dealing behind Nehemiah's back. Instead, he was a military leader who had made a point of faithful service. And his faithful service was rooted in something that was greater than simply personal integrity. It went far deeper than that. And we can see what it was rooted in in the second description of Hananiah, namely that he feared God more than many. Hananiah's relationship with God mattered more than his relationship with men. This was huge for his day. Family ties, social positions, who you were with, this gave your life purpose. This helped you understand and frame your world. Consider how disappointing it would have been for people in his day if they had come to him with big plans, if they had come to him depending on him, telling him that life would be better if he just did what they suggested. But he was known for being willing to give that up, to offend the people who came for support in causes that, although they might be ungodly, was deeply personal to them could be something potentially like betraying Nehemiah. He would have had to stand against the temptation to people-please, those who sought to convince him to do something that benefited them, those who leaned on him and his authority and who wanted him to help them out because he was in this position and they were, there. They were his friends. He, was, he would have to stand against the temptation to do that. And instead, stand for what he felt God had spoken of in Scripture. He was a living example of the statement later said by Jesus in Matthew 6, verse 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Because of this, Nehemiah trusted him. And so he placed him in a position of authority. Every day they were to preside over the gates and stand guard. The sun would rise, and finally, in the heat of the day, they would allow the people outside the city to come in. Now it's a significant detail that they wouldn't let people in until the heat of the day. It meant that for the first half of the day, in which people would be traveling, moving around and accomplishing things, this first half of the day would be lost. Can you imagine not starting work until noon? It was also significant because the heat of the day was most often when people in the Middle East took a break from their work. You can see the same pattern around the Mediterranean today. It would mean that people are much more tired when they're moving around. It would also mean that if anyone tried to stage a sneak attack, they would be lacking in energy compared to the extremely alert watchmen who were posted both at the gates of the city and scattered throughout 
several of them at the opening of their own houses. Now, was this caution warranted? Didn't Nehemiah and his men trust God to protect them? Brothers and sisters, this is simply one more example of Nehemiah's approach to life. Yes, he trusted God, but he also recognized that God calls us not to be foolish, but instead be watchful. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking for someone to devour. As before, he prayed to God and set a watch. And now he continues to do that, to pray to God, to set a watch, to protect the people of God. Because to do anything else would not only be putting God to the test, but it would be enabling the enemy. Sometimes people will set off down a path of life that's perilous, perhaps a friend or a relative or maybe even yourself. And you've convinced yourself that it's not all that bad. You're in not too bad of a position. You've reached this position where life is peaceful. And maybe you think that at this point, well, God will let you off if you just, if you just relax on this point. There are perhaps even some among you that think, although you would never admit it to yourself, that it's okay to go off the straight and narrow for a little while because God will pull you back. Brothers and sisters, we're called not to give in to the temptation to do this. Think of the man whom Jesus spoke about in Luke 12. He had made all kinds of plans apart from God. And Jesus said, but God said to him, fool, this night your soul will be required of you, and then whose will be those things which you yourself have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. You don't know when your life will be taken from you. So whether you are caught in the desire to just indulge in sin a little bit, or you are caught in laying up treasure for yourself, or whatever your situation is, God calls you to constantly stand on the alert, to watch and guard yourself, to prepare against the attacks of the devil, and to keep watch. As we read in Ephesians 6 verse 11 and following, put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand in the evil day, and having done all that, to stand. So, let's not indulge in sin in our lives. Let's not grow complacent because life is suddenly quiet and things are going the right way for us. Let's not get into a mindset that puts the Lord to the test and enables the enemy. Instead, let us stand, but not just stand. Let us stand in the strength of our protector. Let us do this in the same spirit in which we have seen Nehemiah doing it, the spirit which we also find in the passage of Ephesians that we just read, being fully dependent on God. Our God who supplies the weapons and armor in this fight, the God who is the true protector. With God on our side, we will, will be able to stand 
against these forces. With God as our protector, we'll be able to see his grace. This brings us to our third point. We next read in our passage that the city was large and spacious, but the people in it were few, and the houses were not rebuilt. And then my God put it into my heart to gather the nobles, the rulers, and the people, that they might be registered by genealogy. Finally, finally we get to the reason for everything to which the building has led. Everything that had been done on behalf of the people was because of this. To reach the point at which the people could be registered and the names taken. Now, what was the importance of this move? What was the reason for this long list of names that we find? This list of names wasn't random. It wasn't random at all. In fact, you'll find it in Ezra 2, almost word for word, although there is some difference in the numbers. These differences are not our focus for today, but the message that the list sends is what's truly important. This list is a sign of the grace of God overflowing to his people. There was no need for there to be that list. There was no need for the people of Judah to exist at all. In fact, if anything, they deserved their own destruction. And we saw this before. But God, in his abounding mercy, allowed there to be a remnant preserved by grace. This list that we find here was a symbol of God's caring hand. That there was a record of his people and that he knew them by name. Wretches though they were, he moved their hearts. He allowed them to fall at his feet under the burden of an unbearable conviction of sin. He refined them through trials and tribulations. He sharpened them in the conviction that God was their only hope. And then he placed them in the city. The walls that were placed around the city were not primarily to protect it from invaders. That wasn't the first focus of these walls, these tall walls that had been built up. It wasn't so that the people could live securely. Instead, the reason that these walls were built, the walls of Jerusalem, was so that the worship of God could take place, undisturbed. It was so that the people around could hear that the city of God's favor was once again rising up out of the ashes of history, borne up by the dawning light of God's redeeming grace, and they too could return to the city of the great king, the city whose reason for existence was worship. Each and every name that was read off of that scroll, off of the scroll that was read before Nehemiah, each and every name bore testament to that fact. Each and every name was a testament to God's favor, returning his people to a place where they could be completely devoted to worship of him. It wasn't a mark of their diligence. It wasn't a mark of their goodness or their fortitude. They had shown at every turn that they fell away time and time again. But because of their repentance, worked in their hearts by the Holy Spirit, and because of his faithfulness, God's faithfulness to his promises, he had embraced them once again. 
God had shown his faithfulness once again to his work and through his people. What a comfort this is for us, isn't it? It's a great comfort for us today as well. We know that we too are being prepared for a city. There is a new Jerusalem coming. A new city in which finally worship will be the sole reason for its existence. And what beauty awaits there. There we'll be able to worship for eternity. We won't be molested by persecutions, by temptations or sin. There we'll see no more tears, no more mourning, no more crying or pain. Eternity will face us. Eternity in which each action of ours, all of our speech and play, working and building, all of it will be drenched in worship. It'll be done solely for the glory of God. This city will not be one that is rebuilt, one that is rising from brokenness. Instead, it'll be a city that's new, a city that's perfect from the start. Jesus described it elsewhere in the following way. He said, in my Father's house there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way, you know. We know where Christ has gone, and we know the way that we are to take to follow him the way of repentance, the way of coming before him day by day. For those who desire to believe in God, for those who do believe in God, in Jesus Christ, for all who desire to worship him, this will be a reality that's better than anything that we can imagine. So as we see God setting the stage for revival in his holy city of Jerusalem, as we see that happening here in this chapter, Let's pray that God would set the stage for this revival in our own hearts. That we can begin to see this new life, this new Jerusalem, this new kingdom being born out in our lives each and every day. Let us pray that he would place a fire burning in our hearts so that we can't hold in the truth that we hold so dear. And let us pray that we would do that to the glory of God and looking forward to the new Jerusalem to the home of righteousness. Amen.